0: Putting away money for retirement, since I'm not going to be doing this podcast forever. Sorry, I guess I could, but retirement is huge for me. I am deeply focused on it right now. And planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year. Taxes are a doozy, and it's always changing. How do you know what to do? Listen to Wallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you.
2: You got problems that you ought to be
1: concerned with. Woo-ah!
0: You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. It's your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's Bad With Money with Gabby Dunn. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn, and this is my show, Bad With Money. Dress codes. It's a topic a bunch of my listeners asked me to do an episode about. You've had experiences with having to pay for your own work uniforms that then get destroyed by doing that very work. You've been told your hairstyles are inappropriate simply because you aren't white. You've been forced to wear heels while standing for long hours despite documented disabilities. Many of you can't afford to have separate closets for work clothes and weekend clothes. And it's not just for work. School dress codes are also sexist, ableist, transphobic, racist. I hate school dress codes. I hate them. And so, as dress codes have come up again and again in your messages to me, and as I also despise them, we're going to break down American and or Western dress codes in this here episode today. Because harmful school dress codes are a pipeline to harmful work dress codes. And this has to stop because it is gross and awful. And classist. And even if you don't have specific nasty circumstances, you've written to me to say you're generally worried about what to wear to work. Pre-pandemic, some of you were expected to wear suits and ties. Some had to wear skirts. You didn't know if your boss saying the dress code was quote-unquote business casual was actually a secret test designed to shame you into buying tons of nicer work clothes or to humiliate you in front of your new, savvy, better-dressed co-workers. And now, post-pandemic, will sweatpants remain the new normal? I talked to reporter Amanda Mull, who wrote an article called After the Pandemic, the Office Dress Code Should Never Come Back so her position is clear. I also spoke to Stanford law professor Rich Ford, author of a book called Dress Codes. He was literally the coolest person to interview, and if you don't get his book, you are missing out. He studied rules and laws about clothing from the 1300s to the present day in an effort to understand modern racist, classist, and gendered lawsuits around work clothing, the kind we hear about all the time black women kept from wearing afros or dreads, trans people being denied the ability to wear the work uniform of their gender, etc., etc. Dress codes tell us where we are as a society. Are there separations between work and personal lives? Has capitalism dictated our entire wardrobes? And how did history get us here?
2: My name is Amanda Moll. I'm a staff writer at The Atlantic on the health desk, and I also write a column on consumerism called Material World.
0: So you wrote an article called, After the Pandemic, The Office Dress Code Should Never Come Back. Yes. And so my first question is, why are people so confused
2: about what to wear to work? I think that We have, even before the pandemic, we had gotten to a really weird place. The interesting backstory on this article is that I started reporting it in January of 2020. (laughs) So I was already- You did this, Amanda, you did this. (laughs) (laughs) We we had the article basically in the can before the pandemic really started. But that's how weird of a place we were already in as a country with what you're supposed to wear to work. And I think that generally speaking- clothes and how people dress tends to casualize over time. You see this on like a really long arc of history. So I think that we're just at a place in that where the nature of jobs has changed a lot since our parents right. were our age, types of work people do, the expectations around the separateness or not separateness of work and home and work and personal life have changed. So so now we're just like at a at a place where people don't really know how casual is casual and how serious some people are or their bosses might be when they say that it's okay to dress casually.
0: What is business casual and how was that invented?
2: Business casual is pretty much entirely a marketing invention. It is a thing that that got explained to the general public for, I think, the first time in some sort of pamphlets or brochures from, I believe it was Dockers in the 80s, about how There is another way that you can, at the end of the week, when you want to relax a little bit, you can still dress appropriately, but dress more casually. And that was done to sell khakis, basically. They had a product they wanted to market, so they created an occasion for it, which is a really common marketing tactic. People come up with the product first and create the need for it afterward. So you get this idea that like, this is a perk that bosses can give to workers to... To let them feel like they're having a little bit of autonomy, a little bit of personal personal self-determination without really giving them anything that costs money. Yeah. And that really sort of springs up at the same time that like suburban office parks are starting to be constructed and, and office work is starting to change just like a little bit at the beginning. Women are becoming much more common in professional fields. Things like that. So you already have a workplace broadly that is that is in a little bit of flux, That is the circumstances of it are changing, and business casual sort of slotted into that state of change to sell some khakis, basically.
0: So when people are confused about what to wear, I mean, it's basically like they don't want to go into work and be too dressed up because they'll get made fun of but then they don't want to be too casual because they feel nervous that their boss won't take them seriously if they're wearing shorts
2: what should people wear i think that the 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 really difficult answer to that and the the one that creates a lot of the sort of agita that you're that you're noticing is that it really depends on your job yeah and the reason that that's hard is because humans generally think about clothing, whether they realize it or not, is a way to tell the people around them that they understand like the social stakes of the situation that they're in, that they're on the same page, that they understand how to act, <laughs> that, right. that they understand what's being asked of them, and that they are reflecting that back to others. Our clothes are a way that we talk to other people and, and telling people that we get it is is mm-hmm. important in most social situations and it's like very high stakes at work because you're literally being paid for for the amount that you get it <laughs> So as you as you mentioned being too dressy or too casual can signal to people that you don't really understand what you're there for or what you're doing or you don't really get the vibe of the place and that is one of those things that like shows up on people's reviews in in sort of like coded vague ways you don't really get the culture of the place stuff like that so it's really high stakes to figure out what you should wear and also i think that the way that dress codes have changed in the past like 10 20 years make this more difficult for people it was a lot easier when my dad was my age because pretty much all men who worked in offices wore suits right you know or or some like variation of that within like a very narrow range so the expectations were a lot clearer they were also a lot more stifling but it you know there there is uh, some occasional comforts and not having a lot of choice in like what you're supposed to wear. The same theory of like school uniforms, where if you take Uh. out that variable, then at least kids don't have to think about it. That cuts kids off from a lot of other avenues of expression, but there is an argument for it. I think it's the same way with dress codes is that it's having more autonomy is better. But it brings with it a set of sort of neuroses about trying to figure out how much autonomy you actually have. Because, you know, is it a situation where you're really allowed to do what you want or you're being told to do what you want and you're being tested on whether you know what you're supposed to want to do in that situation?
0: Yeah, I went to a school with uniforms. And the thing is that at the beginning of the year, my mom had to drop so much money on our quote unquote school clothes which were now suddenly different from our summer clothes. So can we talk about spending on work clothes and who can afford to do that?
2: Yes. Work clothes are, are sort of an interesting economic problem for a lot of people. Right. Because when you're expected to wear suits, when you're expected to wear dresses, blazers, heels, you end up with a wardrobe of clothes that, that can only go one place. And mm-hmm. you end up in a situation in, you know, much of your waking hours that requires you to have a separate wardrobe from anything that you'd choose for yourself, for most people. Mm-hmm. Some people like suits. I have like a friend like that who still wears a suit to work all the time, but he is clearly in the minority. If you want to progress your professional career, you end up having to I- invest your discretionary income in the, the suits and mm-hmm. other accoutrements that sort of support that effort. And that's going to put some people at a clear disadvantage in trying to fit in in the workplace. Yep. Like if you're just starting a job, you're just out of college. If you come from a wealthy background, you are going to be able to buy nicer clothes. You're going to mm-hmm. be able to more deftly navigate the sort of cues that you're expected to follow, the things that mm-hmm. your wardrobe is supposed to be telling to other people because you have parents that have worked in that environment and know where to take you to buy those clothes. They can buy you your first couple years of work clothes for you. Mm-hmm. So you just have like sort of an automatic way to fit in better from the start. If you are from a working class background, if your parents did not work in offices, if your parents weren't people who wore suits to work or heels to work, and you are coming out of college with a bunch of student loans and trying to find an apartment that's affordable, then finding the clothes that you're supposed to wear to work and that you don't already have because they're a special set of clothes is just going to be more difficult from the jump. And things that people do at the beginnings of their career tend to be magnified over the course of their working life. So if you get behind up front, it's a little harder to catch up. So you end up in this scenario with really stringent dress codes where people just have like a really hard time sort of fitting into that for a lot of really reasonable reasons. With more fluid dress codes or more open dress codes, you have a situation where more of the stuff that you're inclined to wear on the weekend can be incorporated into into your work life. And that just is a little bit, Easier, And there's a little bit less pressure on making sure it's exactly the right thing and the right colors and from the right stores and identifiable to your colleagues is the right thing. So you take a little bit of that economic pressure off of people just entering the workforce.
0: I've had things with work uniforms where you have to buy the uniform up top. And then if you mess it up, if you lose it, if you whatever, it doesn't fit anymore, then you have to buy your own uniform. Do you know when that was implemented or has that always been the case? And do you know about that as sort of a barrier for people or like a problem for people?
2: Yeah, I have had one of these jobs, too. I worked at Best Buy for a long time. And when you showed up and got hired at Best Buy, they gave you two shirts. And, you know, if you worked there for a long time and they just wore out, or if you gained or lost weight, or if you got pregnant or something like that, in order to do your job in the clothes that were assigned to you to wear, you had to spend money on that suddenly. And I, I think that things like this, especially in like the sort of workforce Environment that we have now, where a lot of people in jobs that required uniforms do not have union representation, do not have a contract. Your employer can basically do anything to you that they want. There aren't really a lot of a lot of regulations for fairness or or for equity or anything like that. And just trying to advocate that on your on your own behalf is very very difficult. It's a lot easier to just pay the twenty two dollars. <laughs> to to get the new shirt. So I would say that when we started shifting into this sort of service-oriented economy where a lot of people work in service jobs, Mm -hmm. whether they're straightforward customer service or things that are more modern types of service, whether it's like DoorDash or Uber or things like that, Mm -hmm. you end up in a place where just workers do not have a lot of ways to set rules for themselves beyond like forming a union. So employers can do that if they want to. Are dress codes racist, sexist, classist,
0: ableist, transphobic? (laughs) You're talking about having to wear high heels. You know, you're talking about like for people who wear women's clothing, they have to have a lot more options because you can't wear the same dress twice in one week. Or, you know, the whole thing that always happens with like, if you're a black woman, cut your dreadlocks. Is this something that you've seen that it's just all of these things? (laughs)
2: Yeah, I think that traditional expectations of dress codes are are based on the, the sort of like industrial revolution era assumption about who does certain types of work and in how best to sort of control them, because that's when the labor market in the United States became more formalized and people started having to to go into work somewhere in in really really large numbers. Before that happened, that. D- wasn't really a thing that existed. And because the the labor force was so overwhelmingly male for a long time, the the standards of, of how people should dress were just always based on the sort of need to not like mind control, but it's, it's definitely one of those things yeah. that companies instituted at some point because it helps sort of break down people's individuality. and and make them part of the whole instead of like individually identifiable. And for bosses that has some psychological advantages. So because that was the purpose of it, and because the default was men, and in many cases, white men, you end up with these sort of assumptions that have been carried forward kind of mindlessly about how people will dress and what is the default. And I think that a lot of things that people don't actively intend to be sexist or racist or transphobic or ableist, just sort of get sloppily ascribed to tradition and how we've always done things. And this is how the company has been for a long time. And that brings forward with it sort of a lot of assumptions about who the employees are and what we should expect people to act like and look like and dress like that end up being much harder for some people than others in a way that is indicative of how little thought goes into the well-being of working people.
0: So speaking of men getting to do what they want, can we talk about the red sneakers effect? Because when I was reading about it, I was like, this is only going to apply to dudes.
2: <laughs> yes, the red sneakers effect is is sort of interesting. And I think that it's one of those things that probably applies more often to men, but also just applies better in certain types of jobs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I can see it being useful in in certain types of office jobs, certain types of knowledge work. But in other types of jobs, I just don't think that 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 kind of thing will be rewarded. (laughs) Can you explain what it is? I might need to refresh myself if that's okay.
0: (laughs) It was basically if you dress weirdly or differently at work, it might work in your favor because... People will think, oh, this person's quirky or, oh, this person has something to offer. You kind of looped it in a bit with Mark Zuckerberg's hoodie or like someone, you know, somebody who shows up to work quite literally in red sneakers, right? Oh, that person's different and weird and it might help you like stand out. But I can really only see that applying to like white dudes who people already are like, that person's a genius.
2: Yeah, I think that it applies to people who might already have a certain set of assumptions about their personality. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think that if you're hired to be an ideas person, if you're hired to, to be creative, if you're hired to, to bring like certain types of value to a workplace, then... The red sneakers effect will work for you mm-hmm. because it indicates a a level of sort of roguishness that some people respect in those jobs. But is sometimes when people who who write and research and talk about work actually are just talking about office work and well paid right. knowledge work instead of the entire spectrum of types of work that are done. So I, I think that like for a fairly small cohort of people who are going to be hired into those situations, the red shoes effect probably works great. I think that for people who are hired to do service work, who are hired to do more manual types of labor, things like that, I think that American work culture doesn't want them to be individualistic, wants mm-hmm. them to sort of like fade into the background and not be noticed at all, generally. Right. So I think that for types of work like that, which are, are done by you know people who are less wealthy, people who have less flexibility in their Different life in classes, general yeah right it, for them that generally will not will not work very well.
0: So you talked to this researcher Reagan Goering and he was talking about how students that were clad in white lab coats you said perform better on tests than those without them. and so that might be an argument that people are making oh in the pandemic everyone's not working as hard because they're wearing sweatpants. but if you make people dress up they'll work harder. But I think Reagan said also that that doesn't last that long. What did that research say?
2: Right. This is the the type of pop psychology research that business magazines left to cite is, like, a reason that people in management should force people to do one thing or another. But most psychology research and most, like, behavior research really tells you what happens in, like, a very slim set of circumstances. So basically, like, what that study found was, was that people who were, like, undergrads who don't wear lab coats generally, when you give them a lab coat and ask them to do a task that they would associate with people wearing a lab coat, they generally perform a little better on that task than people asked to do the same thing without the lab coat on. But that doesn't tell you anything about someone who's a trained career PhD scientist and about how they will perform day to day, whether or not they have their lab coat on. Mm -hmm. So the novelty of the situation is often what is a confounding variable in in studies Mm -hmm. like that. And it doesn't tell you anything about what somebody who is trained and educated and experienced and good at their job how their performance will change depending on what they wear. It tells you that you can sort of trick people into focusing better by making their (laughs) circumstances sort of novel and by giving them an indication that this should make them do better. You can make Mm -hmm. people do better on certain things for like a very limited period of time.
0: So should the dress code be abolished?
2: Largely, I think yes. I don't think that we're doing ourselves any great favors by trying to over-determine what the people around us wear on any given day. And I mm-hmm. think that depending on what kind of person you are, like what the structure of your body is, things are going to feel different and, and make you feel more or less comfortable depending on that. My employer has no idea how pants feel on me. My employer has no idea. I hurt my ankle playing soccer when I was 13. I can't wear heels. They would be like dangerous to to my health. But if I wanted to be like a very fancy lawyer, I would have to. And that just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make me a better lawyer to wear heels. Mm -hmm. But that's just the expectation in that in that field still. I think Mm -hmm. that when you break it down like that, it seems sort of silly. And humans are pretty good. I think we tend to discount our ability to sort of read the social cues around us. People want to get fit in at work. They want to get along with their coworkers. They want to be perceived as doing a good job. That is the overwhelming majority of people are you know, trying their best on any given day, mm-hmm. even if they're wearing leggings or whatever. I think that trusting people to make those decisions themselves and to decide how they are most comfortable in front of their coworkers, I don't think you're going to get a lot of crazy results there. I think most yeah. people are going to wear a reasonable set of clothes and, and try to, to look presentable and you just don't have to worry about it. <laughs> where can people find you and find out more about you? You can find me at Amanda Mull on Twitter and at The Atlantic all the time. That's where all my work is.
0: And now let's hear from Dress Codes author Rich Ford, who is the most fascinating person I've met in a long time.
3: My name's Rich Ford, I'm a law professor at Stanford, and I do cultural criticism along with law. I've just written a book called Dress Codes.
0: So what is Dress Codes about?
3: So it's about rules and laws governing fashion. I started writing the project as a result of looking at legal disputes in modern times involving rules and dress codes, and there are a lot of them, a surprising number. When I got into the project, though, I kept going further and further back in history. So it actually begins in the late Middle Ages and around 1300 and not at all comprehensive survey of rules and laws about clothing from then to the present.
0: So we're not just talking about norms. We're talking about in the Middle Ages, there was rules for going into work or rules for being in certain places. Rules
3: for when one could wear certain types of clothing wherever they were. So, for example, in Tudor England, there were a whole series of what were called acts of apparel. And they designated who could wear what according to their social status or rank. So you'd have a provision like, you know, only a knight of the garter or above can wear a certain type of silk. Or, you know, if your income is below a certain amount, you can't use more than X yards of fabric. And there were a lot of these laws, not just in England, but all over Europe.
0: Is it just classist? Is that what it became?
3: A lot of it was classist because the idea was that one could identify someone's social status on site according to what they were wearing. And, you know, certain kind of sumptuous and very expressive attire was used as a mode of statecraft. It was a way of the elite showing, you know, we're magnificent. We're powerful. We deserve your respect. And so it's a problem if people from the lower orders also wear the same clothing. So a lot of it was about that. It was about establishing social rank. There was also a lot of it that was about sex and gender.
0: We're going to get into that. We always hear this stuff about it changing for men and women, right? Oh, the pink was originally a boy's color and men wore heels and wigs first and all this stuff. What were things before and when did things kind of solidify into what we know today as Western gender norms.
3: So in the late Middle Ages, and I start there because a lot of historians describe this as the birth of fashion. It's when you started to get advanced tailoring techniques and you could create these really expressive kind of sculptural garments. So they not only skimmed the body, but you'd get like puffy sleeves or Mm -hmm. big collars and things like this. From that period of time till about the mid 1700s, all of the most... Sexy and advanced fashion started as men's fashions. And men's and women's fashions were much more similar than they were after the 1700s. So there was a certain complementarity. It's not that men and women wore the same clothing. But if you look at, for instance, Henry VIII and then his daughter, Queen Elizabeth I, there's something really similar about the clothing they're wearing. Now, the big difference even then was that women always had to be draped below the waist. Why? Well, it, one of the reasons is that as these advances in fashion started, tailoring was initially associated with masculine fashion. It started in Europe with undergarments that were worn under plate armor. Okay. And the knights were super high status. Of course, this was high-tech military gear.
0: Right.
3: But also, they were always men. Right. And, you know, it seemed to emerge a kind of strange phobia of women's legs, women's nether regions, they had to be obscured. So there was a real sense, and this continued until the early 20th century, that a woman wearing anything tailored below the waist like trousers was quite scandalous. She was almost certainly going to be considered up to no good. It suggested the body below the waist. And okay. these basketball fashions, if you look at them, I mean, they were pretty sexy. They're tights. Yeah. In the Renaissance, you had cod pieces, which were clearly designed to suggest male genitalia. And so these things were assertions of sexual prerogative. Okay. In other words, it was aggressive. And women were to be modest and demure. And so wearing that type of clothing was suggesting that the woman was Mm -hmm. asserting this kind of masculine social privilege. And that, that, of course, was a threat to the social order.
0: Weird. Okay. So then (laughs) you're saying fashion started – For men, so they were wearing heels and women weren't? It's like those buckle shoes, heels things? Is that what we're talking about?
3: High heels came into Europe in the late 1500s, and they were adopted from Persian equestrians, horse riders. So the heel was designed to hook into the stirrup. And when these Persian equestrians came to Europe, they were really exotic and really sexy and really virile. And so then, you know, wanted to adopt that style for themselves and started wearing these high heels. And over time, the high heel became a status symbol. And so, of course, it needed to get bigger and bigger and more exaggerated so everyone would notice. By the time you get to Louis XIV, for instance, you have these huge... High heels, green and red so that everyone will notice them. And he even passed laws prohibiting anyone outside his royal court from wearing shoes with red soles or red heels.
0: Oh my God, Louboutins.
3: Yes, exactly. It's got to be the the precursor for Louboutins.
0: This is so fast. I'm like every (laughs) sentence that you're saying, I'm blown away. Wow. So what was the first instance of a work dress code?
3: I'm not certain what the first instance of a work dress code is, but I can say that work wear, as we now know it, started to evolve in the mid-1700s when men started to develop a streamlined and kind of sober wardrobe. So before then, you had this opulence that I was describing, you know, in masculine fashion, even more than feminine fashion, it was silks and brocades and precious metals and jewels, feathers, makeup, all of this was masculine fashion. But when you get to the mid-1700s, you're starting to get a series of social changes that lead the new norm to be sobriety. Some of them are religious puritanism. Some of it's the enlightenment and the idea of some form of egalitarianism. And then industriousness. You know, so rather than honor, the new norm is sobriety, industriousness. You know, we're getting into the work ethic.
0: Ambition. Exactly. Yeah.
3: So you get this business suit. Okay. It starts to evolve slowly, but, you know, over time into something that's a lot like the modern business suit, black, dark colors, not much adornment. And that becomes a workplace dress code that really spans social classes. So the lowly clerk, as well as the head of state, is wearing pretty much the same clothing with respect to this three-piece suit. It was considered to be required. It really would be you know, quite scandalous for a man to you know, not wear a tie or to ha- not have the appropriate starched collar.
0: Well, who does that leave out? Because you have to then buy clothes for work.
3: Yes. Now, so it's certainly there is a class divide, nevertheless, with respect to what we would now consider white collar, blue collar. So the you know workers, people who are doing manual labor, are not wearing this type of clothing. But everyone in the bourgeoisie from lowly clerks to heads of state are wearing this this kind of outfit. Of course, there are distinctions within this type of clothing. So there's finely tailored clothing that's custom made. Very quickly, you get ready-made clothing. Like Brooks Brothers begins the ready-made suit. And what's remarkable at the time is how that democratizes clothing for, again, for bourgeois men. Women are left out. We can talk about that. But that's the big category of people who are left out. But it democratizes that form of clothing so that you know, Europeans visiting America when the Brooks Brothers suit is starting to be churned out are just astonished that everyone's wearing what's considered to be very refined clothing. One person remarks, in the United States, a mob is a mob wearing waistcoats. <laughs> it's the idea that you know everyone's wearing this kind of clothing that in Europe yeah. would be reserved for the elite.
0: What year was that?
3: That was in the early 1800s.
0: Wow. Okay. So that's really, I was thinking more like the Beatles wearing suits kind of thing, but that's way earlier.
3: This is much earlier. Yeah, The Brooks Brothers starts churning out mass-produced suits in the 1800s, and they become the standard uniform for anyone in the bourgeoisie.
0: So women were not in these same workplaces. No. So- there was no mass produced clothing for them.
3: That's right. Wow. And women's clothing diverges in this moment in the 1700s when the men start wearing this the streamlined sober stuff. That doesn't happen for women because this is about working and it's about exercising power and these gender norms. In some sense, the gender roles are diverging. The women's role is becoming even more than in the past, focused on domesticity Decorativeness, modesty, women's clothing tends to be quite, not only quite cumbersome, heavy layers and layers Uh of quartz, still always draped below the waist. Even in the most streamlined versions, it's a draped gown and kind of whimsical. It's certainly not communicating this sense of practicality. And sobriety. And it's also, in fact, not very practical. So it's hard to move around in.
0: So then take us into the 1900s.
3: Well, so in the 1900s, several things happened. And this is a moment when women are entering the workplace. So for women's clothing, things are starting to shift. You have a shift from the big, heavy skirts and then later the cage crinoline. Oh, yeah. You don't have to have all the layers of skirts, so this is an advance in one sense. And of course, fashion being what it is, they they get bigger and bigger. It's easier to make them bigger because you don't have the layers. And this becomes kind of standard women's wear. But there were movements to reform women's clothing in order to make it more practical. You know, Amelia Bloomer is the name that comes to most people's mind right away, but it was an attempt to make this woman's trousers. And that was popular for about a year, and then it got ridiculed out of existence Amelia Bloomer herself wound up wearing a, a crinoline after a while. But mm. World War I requires a lot of women to go into the workforce. And then they start right. wearing more practical clothing. And you get women's workwear, flapper clothing. What we associate now with flappers really starts off from working class women, then a racially diverse group of women who are insisting on more practical clothing, also, sexier clothing in a sense because it's streamlined, mm-hmm. you know, rather than all the puffy skirts. But it, and it also expresses this idea of masculine privilege. So that's one big change in workwear. And it's quite scandalous. There are lots of workplace dress codes that are trying to outlaw flapper fashions in a variety of ways or ban flapper fashions because they're considered to be either too ugly or too sexy. Oh, those were both critiques of these streamlined styles. They're masculine and therefore unattractive and these women will never find mates or there's you know they're so streamlined and they show the body and they're scandalous and these women will be victims of sexual assault if they wear this clothing.
0: Oh my god, nothing's changed.
3: Yes, yeah, so some things never change.
0: Jesus. So you started with lawsuits. And so when did there start being sort of laws that we can now identify as being racist, primarily against black people, right? So like cornrows and things like that.
3: Yes. Well, I mean, the earliest laws that I identified with respect to race, 1740.
0: Oh, my God. Yes,
3: yes. So as soon as – I mean, almost as soon as the first Africans are forcibly located to this country, you begin to get laws trying to keep them down and keep them in their place. But so by 1740, you have something in South Carolina called the Negro Act, and it was – a pretty comprehensive piece of legislation designed to make sure that people of African descent can't own firearms. and But clothing was one of the, the strictures, and it required that any slave or Negro must wear what they called Negro cloth, which was this really coarse, kind of almost burlap-like clothing, okay. and, and prohibited them from wearing finer clothing. So, that's an initial one. And you know apparently what's going on at the time is that some African Americans some are free and they are able to purchase whatever clothing they like. Some are slaves but they have arrangements such that they still can purchase fine clothing or it's provided for them and people don't like it. You know they don't want to see African Americans dressed in the latest fashions. They're angry about it. So that sets the tone. And really, for a long time after that, and I would say well into the mid 20th century, there's a strong social norm against well dressed African Americans. The African Americans wearing their Sunday best on any day other than Sunday were attacked by racist mobs. They were ridiculed in the white controlled press.
0: There's a no win.
3: Yes, there is certainly, I mean, this kind of double binds are so prevalent. Among these dress codes, both for women and for African-Americans and people of color. And you're right, it continues on to the present day with the bans on braids and locks and things like that.
0: So how does that go into workplace mobility for black people?
3: If I can go back to the the 50s, the civil rights movement is people wearing their Sunday best. When they're, they're protesting, they're sitting in at lunch counters, they're getting attacked by police dogs, sprayed by fire hoses, you know, they know they're going to be in for some rough treatment. They're wearing their Sunday best. I think part of this, it relates to that history I was describing earlier, where wearing this kind of clothing is really a demand for dignity. So putting that on is a way of saying, we're going to demand the dignity that you associate with this clothing, we're worthy, and we're going to show you that. Now, it gets complicated. Because at the same time, there is an element in which wearing that clothing is its emulating the white power structure. And right. it requires some things, like, particularly for women, pressed hair. You know, if you want to have a respectable hairstyle in the 1950s, right. your hair is straight. And later activists start to understand that this is disempowering in its own way. And so they start to develop, certainly the Black Panthers are a good example of this, but also developing kind of black is beautiful aesthetic, natural hair, different clothing. But it's tied into this attempt to have solidarity across social classes and to have racial pride. So that when you're getting into the 1970s, that's moving into the workplace. And it's controversial. And it's not just white people who find it controversial, but, you know, certain African-Americans also feel like you need to dress respectably. And so,
0: Uh, you
3: know, it's complicated because it starts as a civil rights movement with a really good justification that you can understand. And it turns into what people are kind of opposed to today as the politics of respectability.
0: No, everybody does it. I mean, I'm a queer person and there's a, an ongoing debate about wearing kink wear at Pride. Oh. Should you be able to wear like a leather harness or yeah, yeah. kink attire at Pride or should you be at Pride trying to look respectable to straight people, and that's just a debate that is ongoing, will be ongoing. Right. I am pro-kink at pride. Or women who are saying to other women, oh, you shouldn't wear that short skirt. Mm-hmm. It comes from within the community as well.
3: Yes, Right. It's so interesting. I mean, I've been thinking about the difference here at San Francisco now between the Gay Pride Parade and the Folsom, and Folsom Street Fair.
0: Absolutely! So those are two
3: different vibes and they're two different ideas.
0: Two different outfits, two different... Yeah, totally. Okay, so then going into the 80s, I feel like everyone sort of comes back to this trying to look rich kind of thing. How does that affect women and black people and black women?
3: I mean, in the 80s, you get like I'm thinking about the preppy look and the way that becomes very prominent then. And it is a way of identifying with, you know, the wasp elite, for lack of a better term. Now, it's always getting subverted, too. And so one of the things that is is kind of interesting from, I guess, probably from the 60s on, but certainly you see it in the 80s and 90s, is that these these kind of fashion trends are tweaked. By various outsider groups in order to make them more empowering. So, with the preppy look, like after a while, you get hip hop right. wearing preppy stuff. By the 90s, you're getting it's Kanye and his pink polo. So, they were all wearing this polo stuff, but you know, it was clearly like they're not trying to look like prep school students.
0: Right.
3: But the 80s were a weird time for gendered fashions because you get these interesting combinations of power suit. It's got big shoulders, it's, you know, masculine, but then a miniskirt because mm-hmm. there's always still this social requirement to look feminine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a really consistent thing with women's fashion. Mm-hmm. Women's fashion seems to toggle between these kind of extremes at, at various times where there's an aspect of it that can borrow from menswear as long as there's another aspect that's super femme. And I think you see that really strikingly in the 1980s.
0: So jumping ahead to now, what are the lawsuits specifically that you're seeing in terms of, let's say, black women's hair or different clothing choices for work?
3: Yes. Well, certainly black women's hair, it's a continual topic in lawsuits. There's a woman who wore locks and was denied employment because of she wouldn't comply with the dress code. That considered the locks to be unprofessional. What was really striking about this case is that guess what the job was telephone call center operator.
0: No one is seeing you.
3: But nevertheless, this was in the dress code. On the other side, there was an African American woman who had blonde hair and was told by her boss that she can't have blonde hair because the dress code required you know natural hair colors. And you know she pointed out, well, a lot of people dye their hair blonde. You know, he says, yeah, but. Black women don't have blonde hair. So she actually won her lawsuit against the employer and got something like $250,000 settlement. High schools are another area where there are a lot yes. of dress code enforcement.
0: Speak on it. Let's talk about racist and gendered high school dress codes.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's really striking that in some cases there'd be a crackdown in the dress code, but 90% of the enforcement, 90% was girls.
0: I hate it. I hate it so much. It goes into gender and class and like who can afford to buy new clothes and girls being able to learn in school. Like, yeah. ooh, ooh, I hate it. And it goes into the workplace too of who yeah. is able to get better jobs, who is able to learn, who is able to It's just so embedded in like yes. the very beginning of academic workplace class life.
3: Yes, Absolutely. And it, it, it deals, you know, there are questions of body type that have racial dimensions. So mm-hmm. the girls who are curvier are going to get caught, signaled out for dress code violations more often. The double binds do extend into the workplace because the same idea about, you know, being either too sexy or distracting to men then emerges in professional contexts. It's a really consistent theme and kind of, you know, breathtaking and appalling just how consistent this double bind is for
0: women. Oh my God, I could talk to you forever. Okay, current day, is there a huge disparity in spending for work, whether blue collar or white collar, between genders and races?
3: There's certainly a disparity between men's and women's spending. Not only do you have just flat out discrimination in things like dry cleaning. Dry cleaners will charge more to dry clean a woman's shirt than a men's shirt. I remember going to the dry cleaner once and the dry cleaner couldn't tell whether it was a men's or women's shirt and ask. And then, like, oh, if it's a woman's shirt, they were gonna charge you $15 instead of five. So there's this kind of thing that happens. But because women don't have the same kind of professional uniforms available to them, they've gotta struggle more to figure out what's appropriate to wear. And that leads to a lot of additional expense as well.
0: Oh, okay. My final question, which I read in part of your book and I just felt really deeply is, I'm not quoting it directly, I don't think, but the hoodie sweatshirt is threatening on Trayvon Martin, but disarmingly charming on Mark Zuckerberg.
3: Yes. I work in the Silicon Valley, so I see this all the time. The idea that this, you know, really dressed down, casual look shows youth. It shows innovation. It shows that you're not uptight. You know, Peter Thiel, the entrepreneur once said, never invest in a tech company where the CEO wears a suit. So it's the inverse, but it's harder for people of color to pull off that dressed-down look. And you see it really clearly. The the gray T-shirt or the hoodie sweatshirt, if you're African-American wearing that, you're likely to be mistaken for a gang member or a thug. So it's another example of a standard that is harder on people who don't already have a certain social privilege. That's a really right. consistent thing, that the idea that dressing down is just totally great and leveling of hierarchy isn't really true, that there's a reverse snobbery that comes into it where Absolutely. you dress down because you can.
0: Where can people find your book and more about you?
3: At www.dresscodes, and that's one word, .org, That's my website. Nice. And I've got a Twitter and Instagram too, but all of that's on the website.
0: In 2009, I shoplifted from an urban outfitter's in Union Square in Manhattan. The reason I did it was because I needed clothes for my unpaid internship. I'd been embarrassed recently when, on the job, which was in digital media for Comedy Central, I'd ripped my one button down shirt. I worked 40 hours a week for no money. Since then, interns have actually sued and won against the parent company Viacom and are now paid, but that was not the case in 2009. In my book, Bad With Money, I go into the whole mortifying ordeal of getting caught and why it was not the genius problem-solving I thought it was at the time. I actually wasn't really thinking. I did it because I was angry. I did not have the money or the background or the familial wealth to buy tons of new clothes for my new job. I went from being a college student in my jeans and tees to a job that allowed me to keep working in jeans and tees at the Boston Globe because I was on the night shift and no one important ever saw me. And then to my next job where suddenly I was visible during the day to executives and bosses who expected me to now have a completely new wardrobe. I could see my fellow intern, the one I was to be pitted against for a job, thriving in her cubicle next to me. I could see she wore a new outfit every day. So one day, walking to the subway after work, I stood outside the Urban Outfitters on 14th Street and I stared at the mannequins in the window in their stylish skirts and appropriate and chic work dresses. And I fumed. It wasn't fair. I just remember my face turning red and the phrase, it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair, repeating in my head. And the next thing I knew, a security guard was stopping me so he could look through my purse where I'd shoved in clothes I hadn't bought. I booked it. And because I'm white, that was the end of that particular story. I threw the clothes out of my bag and I ran as fast and as far as I could. I wish I had some grand conclusion to attribute to all of that, but I don't. I'm still full of resentment from all the times in my life that I did feel less than because of money and clothes, and that is all still a big part of that resentment. Like I'm literally working on it in therapy. So should we abolish work dress codes? I say yes. But what do you think?